Welcome to Into the Breach, a reps and warranties policy podcast by Brian O'Keefe and Jenna Usenheimer, partners and co-leaders of the Transactional Underwriting Council practice at Cyforth Shaw, interviewing leaders from the industry and exploring the latest developments, market trends, and news impacting RWI and the transactional risk insurance markets. Welcome to Into the Breach. Uh, this is Brian O'Keefe, your fearless host here. I'm joined by my uh, partner in crime in Florida, Jenna Usenheimer. How are you doing, Jenna? Good. How are you, Brian? I, I like that you are a self-proclaimed fearless leader of the podcast. It sounds like you're disagreeing with that characterization. Oh, no, no, not at all. Not at all. You've been very fearless. We were talking earlier in the week. You've been very fearless. In, Jenna's in Florida, as our loyal podcast listeners actually know already, and she is visiting her parents, and she has been fearless in attempting to get the uh, the COVID-19 vaccine at all these places in Florida that she's not actually eligible to get it at. So, <laughs> Well, let me, let me explain for our listeners, but really it's my mother, I would say, who has been really fearless. So we heard that if you, now that Publix is giving out uh, vaccinations, we heard that if you go at the end of the day, if they have extra vaccinations, they'll just like give the shot to anybody. So we like checked it out with the pharmacists of Publix and they said, well, no, not anybody. You have to be a Florida resident, which I'm not, and also 65 and older or a healthcare worker. And so my mom started, you know, like really pressing the pharmacist, like, well, if it's only Jenna, are you really going to throw it out and not give it to her? And then the pharmacists are like, basically like, lady, it's Florida. There's always someone around here, 65 and older. So it's been, it's, it's been an unsuccessful attempt to get vaccinated. I think we're going to have to have your mom on the show to advocate for you about why, why you should get this from the pharmacies, you know? Well, if she's fully vaccinated, my parents, I'm happy to say, are fully vaccinated. So it makes me feel much better. Uh, my parents have the first shot, so they're, uh, they're still getting there. But, um, well, uh, we're uh, very excited to have on today's show uh, AJ Kritzman, who is a senior underwriter at uh, Tokyo Marine. And he's going to be on the show to talk with us about uh, international deals involving reps and warranty insurance. We've actually had a couple different international theme shows here now, Jenna. Um, but this is our first one about uh, sort of the application of the product actually in a international deals in the international context. And uh, we're really happy to have you on here, AJ. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Great. So maybe you just want to tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, uh, your uh, position at Tokyo Marine and um, you know your, your professional background and what led you into reps and warranty insurance. Uh, sure. Yes. So I am the um, senior underwriter for transactional risk insurance at uh, Tokyo Marine uh, for their North American operation. Uh, Tokyo Marine HCC or Houston Casualty Company um, has been in the reps and warranties and the warranty and indemnity space uh, for about a good 11, 12 years now. Uh, but they just entered the U.S. market at the uh, tail end of 2017. Uh, when my uh, coworker Shane DeBurka uh, was hired as our lead underwriter for North America. And then I came to join him a few months later in very early 2018 as a senior underwriter. Uh, both of us have uh, background experience having worked at Concord Specialty Risk, uh, which is part of the Riot Specialty Group. Uh, I think Shane had worked there for about three, three and a half years or so. And I had worked there for about two and a half years uh, where we were both underwriters. I think at the time at Concord, he was the chief underwriting. Um, officer and I was a senior counsel, which was 
very akin to just being a senior underwriter. Uh, so we both kind of learned the trade there and then came over to Token Marine to start the North American platform. Uh, by way of my professional background, um, I was uh, a lawyer at a law firm that is now part of Lock Lord. Uh, but the time when I was there it was Edwards Wildman Palmer. And then before that, it was Edwards Angel Palmer and Dodge. Uh, I worked in the insurance regulatory and transactional space. So I spent about half my time doing M&A deals in the insurance space. Basically, every time an insurance company, agent, broker, MGA uh, was selling themselves to either a bank, a private equity firm, or a strategic buyer. And then the other half of my time was working on um, very unique complex regulatory issues uh, on behalf of insurance companies and representing insurance companies in front of uh, the many state regu insurance regulators around the country. Um, I so, think you skipped over an important part of your uh, professional history, Agent. You have a prior life as a CPA, which made your parents very proud. <laughs> yes, yes, I was. I was a CPA, <laughs> uh, but I was an auditor. I was not a tax CPA. So they didn't understand why my business season didn't overlap. Uh, with, <laughs> The tax accountants that they knew, uh, but yeah, I was doing a lot of public company um, uh, tax audit, uh, sorry, uh, audits at the time, um, and then also I think did audits for um, hospital systems and for uh, private colleges as well. Well, that's great. That's very uh, very interesting background, and uh, we know that you know Tokyo Marine uh, has a specialty. I think it's involved in a lot of international transactions and, and does a lot of international deals. Is that right? Uh, yes. Yes. So um, Tokyo Marines. Um, Transactional risk insurance, like hub of operations, is in Barcelona, Spain, and uh, that's because going back a few years, uh, HCC had their sort of um, for their uh, professional lines and for their management lines, the hubs of operations were in Farmington, Connecticut, and Barcelona, and. Um, Doing the transactional risk out of Barcelona was, I think, like a lower cost situation for them because you could get really good employees and not have to pay necessarily like London or Paris rates. Uh, and they had the ability to uh, work across the continent and then also in England. And they were also doing a fair amount of business in Australia as well. Uh, so doing a lot of warranties and indemnities insurance um, policies, but very little in the way of like North American policies uh, until they um, hired myself and Shane and started up the North American operations. And I think Barcelona is where a friend of the podcast who may not know she's a friend of the pod, uh, Deborah McGrady is headed, right? That's where she's headquartered in Spain. Oh, Deborah McGrady? Yeah. Yes. So Deborah McGrady is in charge of Tokyo Marines um, global operations. And uh, she's right now actually located in New Zealand because <laughs> of so COVID. She's from New Zealand, right? Well, that's, that is how, this is like a deviation here. That is how we know her because we were all, Brian and I and Deborah were at a, like a, some sort of conference. And I heard the New Zealand accent. I had just come back from like six weeks or something like that in New Zealand. Right. And so I sort of like, <laughs> I found her and glommed right onto her. Then it's like, oh, yeah, I want to yeah. represent them because she's from New Zealand. I was like, that's a good enough reason, right? So, as good as any. <laughs> she's, she's a very big rugby fan. She uh, she loves her All Blacks. And uh, yeah, she's a great person to work for. And, and heads up a unit now that we have folks not only in North America and Barcelona, but also in London and, and in Germany, in Singapore, and also in Sydney, Australia as well. So she literally has people sending her emails and asking her questions 24-7 all over the globe. Well, that keeps her plenty busy, I'm sure. So it does. Well, getting into some of the, the meat and potatoes, if you will, today, um, AJ. So I think we wanted to start off just by uh, giving our listeners a little bit of an overview um, you know, between the differences of the U.S. style reps and warranty insurance coverage and then uh, the coverage that you may get uh, either in Europe or in Asia. And there really are 
a lot of important differences um, down the line and, and differences in the policy. So maybe explain a little bit about that and then we can get into uh, how the how the deals can be structured differently to maybe take advantage of some of the enhancements that we have under the US style policies. Yeah, sure, not a problem. So uh, the term warranties and indemnities is often used outside of uh, North America with regard to uh, what is actually being insured uh, by the policy. I don't think that there's really that much difference between warranties and indemnities and representations and warranties. It's almost like there's not much difference between representations and warranties. Although I think I learned at one point in the past that a a warranty is is uh, the strength of something in particular at a given moment, and then how it will um, be used going forward. Whereas a representation is more about like what has happened historically. But at the end of the day, we just basically call them all reps. And I think that you know, over in, in other parts of the world outside of the United States, they just call it W and I or just warranties, mm-hmm. right? So once you get past that little like semantic hurdle, then you get into like sort of like the brass tacks of what the differences are. And uh, typically, over uh, outside of the United States, in Asia, and in Europe you're gonna have uh, rates online or the percentage of the policy limit that is charged for the policy, i.e. the premium, is gonna be lower than what you have in the US. And what you'll find out the reason why that is is because US style coverage often provides more coverage for the policyholder. It is more beneficial for the buyer of the target for the deal to get a US style policy as opposed to a non-US style policy. Uh, that being said, U.S. style policies will charge between, you know, around two and a half to three and a half percent right on line, depending, of course, on the complexity of the deal, the industry, uh, the size of the deal. There are other factors going on, but generally that, that's your range. Uh, so you're talking probably anywhere between two to three to maybe four times as costly a policy as you would get outside of the United States. Um, other aspects are with regard to the retention. Uh, people ask me, well, what is a retention? It's sort of like an insurance policy deductible. It's how much pain the buyer has to suffer before they can make a claim on the policy. And typically in Europe and in Asia, you're going to talk um, around maybe 50 basis points of deal value, whereas in the United States, you're going to be more around 1% or of deal value. In the United States, you can go below 1% of deal value, but it's usually going to be for your fairly larger deals. Mm-hmm. Um, and then with regard to um, the amount of limits that are actually purchased, typically outside the United States, uh, the limits could maybe equal up to like 50% or even 100% of the deal value. Whereas in the United States, the limits that are purchased are usually 10 to 20%. So just, you know, for round number sake, for a $100 million deal in the U.S., you typically only buy a 10 or $20 million policy. But outside the United States, you might buy a $50 million policy or maybe even a $100 million policy. Okay, so then on that one, just that's an interesting point. I think this in the when they're buying a, a, a the policy that may be like fifty percent or even more than that. Is that one insurer, or will they build a tower to kind of cover that? Because we know in the U.S., if you're going to want to build, you know, go above the normal limits, you can do that, but you kind of have to build a tower, or will, or will one insurer sort of uh, cover the whole thing at those sort of limits? I, from what I understand, you can get one insurer to cover limits in, the, in, in that amount. There are insurers out there that will do $100 million of coverage, although at least they advertise that. Do they do that in, in actuality? Perhaps. But if they do, you know, more likely than not, it's going to be uh, ventilated. So maybe they'll do a $50 million primary and then maybe $25 million at some excess layer, maybe $25 million at another excess layer on top of that. So for one particular deal, they'll have $100 million riding, but not all in the same chunk. Right, right. Um, so then the, the differences and as to why, you know, for instance, the U.S. coverage is more desirable than what you might get to outside of the United States is, you know, there's two main things that kind of drive this. One is uh, in Europe and in Asia, the sellers will basically say, here's my warranties and indemnities. And then over here is a disclosure letter. And the first thing the disclosure letter references is the data room. 
So all the answers to any of your questions as to what might be an exception to one of these warranties and indemnities, you could find that in the data room. Now they might make certain specific references in that disclosure letter, but the disclosure letters are typically very thin and not a lot of work goes into them. Seller's counsel, sellers, the thought is all your answers are in the data room. So insurers of WI policies, they kind of take the same tact and they say, you know what, we're going to deem everything in the data room to be disclosed. And in the United States, that just does not happen. In the United States, <laughs> in the United States, no, it does not. unfortunately, it does not happen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so we have the four corners, right? So the, in the four right. corners of the purchase agreement and the disclosure schedules that go along with it, that is everything that is said and done in the deal. And you can't make any references to things outside of those four corners because that's not how we work in the United States when it comes to contractual law. So a lot of buyers don't like that because that means that everything in the data room could be deemed disclosed and they can't make a claim on it. And that, and that could be little things or that could be big things. So in the United States, our willingness to not already deem everything in the data room to be disclosed to the buyer and therefore knowledge qualified and therefore excluded under the policy because remember for our policy, we cover the unknown, not the known. And if we say that you knew about it because it was in the data room, then you're going to have an exclusion that will apply and therefore your claim will be denied. In the United States, we don't do that. So that is a big coverage enhancement that European brokers and European buyers want to get in their policies. The other one has to do with the buyer's diligence reports. So just like in the United States, uh, European, Asian buyers will do a fair amount of diligence on their targets. And that diligence will then get diligence by the reps and warranties or warranty indemnity underwriter. And we will then you know, use those diligence reports as a basis for the questions that we asked during our diligence call and during our underwriting process to determine you know, what's the breadth of the coverage we want to provide and what exclusions we think are appropriate because we don't want to necessarily cover known matters because they have been uncovered in the buyer's diligence reports. But that's a negotiation. That's a haggle between the underwriters and the buyer's counsel and the buyer and the broker. But for European and Asian style deals, that is not anything that gets haggled because everything that shows up in the buyer's diligence reports is deemed disclosed. So you might have facts, matters, or circumstances of items that might be in the buyer's diligence report that are not in the data room. It doesn't matter. The seller doesn't even need to know about it. It's going to get excluded. So the seller doesn't even have the opportunity to disclose it in the disclosure letter. As long as it's in the report, we deem it knowledge accepted by the buyer, therefore excluded under the policy. So in the US, course, we don't do that. So another big US style enhancement that folks are willing to pay for, maybe have a little bit of a higher retention for, and therefore they want it. Um, and then a couple other little things. Um, in Europe, it's very common to have what's known as a warranty spreadsheet that rides alongside the policy. And basically, that's just a reworking of the warranties and indemnities that are in the purchase agreement. And they tend to be very broad, and they tend to be very long. And it's something that, of course, buyers and buyers council in Europe and Asia don't necessarily like, but it's just the way that things are done over there. So they abide by it. And what it basically does is it narrows the coverage, which is probably one of the many reasons why the coverage is so much cheaper outside the United States than it is in the United States. Because in the United States, underwriters will mark up the underlying purchase agreement a little, maybe a little more than a little, but not necessarily nearly anything like they do in Europe or in Asia. Also, policies in Europe and Asia will have what's known as de minimis thresholds. So don't bother making a claim unless it reaches a certain amount. And even then, if it doesn't reach a certain amount, it won't have any road the retention. We don't have these in the United States. Um, and then a couple other things. In Europe and Asia, they tend to have a lot more, we'll call them like automatic exclusions that are 
almost not negotiable, although of course everything is up for negotiation, but uh, certain things like, for instance, uh, asset condition, construction defects, bribery and corruption, very big in Asia, anti-money laundering, also very big in Asia, uh, generalized forward-looking language that gets excluded under the policy, no buyer's counsel or buyer's broker in the United States will ever accept any kind of language like that, but it's widely accepted in Europe and Asia. And then other kinds of tax exclusions like secondary tax liability, transfer pricing, uh, that may, with proper diligence, get covered in the United States. Chances are in Europe and Asia, it doesn't get covered. Uh, other things, uh, this is a good one, a little nuance, but it has to do with actual knowledge. Um, the hurdles that an insurer will have to uh, jump over and jump through to prove that a policyholder or more specifically the buyer's deal team have about a particular fact matter or circumstance and then that, that fact matter or circumstance actually amounts to a breach is very difficult and the burdens on the insurer to do so. But in Europe and in Asia, the definition of actual knowledge is actually much more easily proved. Mm -hmm. So another benefit to the policyholder, to the buyer, to the buyer's deal counsel, to the buyer's brokers is this actual knowledge definition for US style policies, much harder to prove. And therefore the exclusion for actual knowledge is uh, not nearly as powerful for you know, US insurers when it comes to US style policies. And um, we think I, I got just a couple of little procedural things. In the US, we tend to have conditional binders where basically after the diligence is done, after the policy is negotiated, we don't actually issue the final policy at signing. We have a couple of things that need to get done. We call them subjectivities. Basically, you have to pay for the insurance. You have to provide us a data room, a thumb drive, or a DVD. You have to provide us a you know, PDF with a closing set, a couple other things, and then we'll issue you the final policy. Over in Europe and in Asia, there is no con um, conditional binder. The final policy is issued at signing, and there might be some things that need to get done. They call them conditions precedent. Uh, between the signing and closing, namely getting a closing NCD or no claims declaration, if there are no claims that are known by the buyer at the time of the closing. Uh, but the final policy getting issued at signing uh, is generally a, you know, kind of a big difference than what we do in the United States, where we only at signing really only have at best a draft policy. And uh, there is a kind of growing use of what's known as a conditional exclusion in the US, mm -hmm. uh, where maybe the buyer uh, wasn't able to get all the information necessary to answer the underwriter's questions about a particular matter. So the underwriter will say, well, you know, if you get between signing and closing, if you gather the information, provide us good analysis, we might remove this exclusion uh, from the draft policy. Uh, that also happens in Europe too, but in the United States, because the policy is just in draft form, it could just be revised. But in Europe, because the final policy has been issued, in order to remove these conditional exclusions, you'd actually have to um, agree to an endorsement, which is would be like a sort of side document that gets signed by uh, the buyer and, and the insurer or the policyholder and the insurer, and that would modify the already issued policy. Uh, but that's just basically it for kind of like the, the uh, pricing differences, the mechanical differences, and the coverage differences. I think that's quite a, quite a comprehensive list and, and really great for the listeners to understand the differences. So I think this sort of begs the question. So if you Obviously, the U.S. policies, uh, at least from the buyer's perspective, have a, have a lot of enhancements and things that make them uh, things that make them better. So, um, you know, if you're doing a deal where there, uh, you know, maybe are some inter international operations, um, maybe there is some connection to the United States, maybe it's a tenuous connection to the United States. 
Um, you know, how, how do you kind of go about that? Like, how would you decide if you should be, if you're even capable of using uh, a U.S. Uh, reps and warranty insurer? Does it, does it depend on the sort of purchase agreement that's used? Maybe explain a little bit how they get, how buyers uh, in these sorts of deals can take advantage of the U.S. enhancements. Right. So there, there's multiple different parties involved and multiple different ways to, um, to work a transactions, you know, sort of like the old adage, there's more than one way to skin a cat. Um, so, you know, in a situation where you have, for instance, um, a U.S. buyer, but you might have a foreign target and a foreign seller, if you have a U.S.-style purchase agreement, then it would make a lot of sense to have a U.S.-style reps and warranties policy used to ensure that agreement. If, however, you have a foreign buyer, but a U.S. seller, maybe a foreign target, so kind of follow me along right there, <laughs> you have a U.S. Right. US seller, but it's a foreign target, but you also have a foreign buyer, right? And in that scenario, you might have a, um, a foreign style uh, purchase agreement. And the reason why I use the word foreign style is because you, know, you could have purchase agreements that are in French, you could have them in German, you could have them in Italian, you could have them in Spanish, you could have them in English, um, but it's being done um, in a style, not necessarily where the, uh, the law that would interpret the contract is coming from, but just the style of the agreement is non-US. And in that scenario, it would be best to use a warranty indemnities policy. However, you want to get those US style enhancements in that right. warranty and indemnity policy. And so we often refer to this sort of like hybrid cover, right? And uh, this is kind of like the newer concept. So instead of just using a reps and warranties policy, you're gonna use a warranties and indemnities policy, but you're gonna have like these US style coverage concepts. And so that's something that we could do over at Token Marine as well. Um, and so, you know, what you do with that is, you know, you'll take, for instance, your exclusions <laughs> that you would normally have in your WNI policy and you remove them. Um, and that is basically step one. <laughs> now, in order for all of this to work, and this is sort of like the key, is that you have to have a seller who's going to disclose using a U.S. style disclosure regimen, right? Right. So you can't have a seller just point to the data room and say, right. yeah, all well, it's in there. The seller has to you know, play ball as well. So if you have the seller on board for this, and this is very easily done when you have a U.S. style seller, regardless of whether or not you have a um, European or Asian buyer or European or Asian target, but if you have a U.S. style seller, they're going to be very used to disclosing using a U.S. style disclosure regimen. And well, what does that mean? Well, that means that every time you have an exception to a particular rep or warranty, you're going to list that exception. And if right. that exception might apply to one or more uh, reps, maybe you list that same exception twice, or at least a reference to the last one. So a good example would be uh, some kind of like labor litigation. So that's going to go into the litigation rep, but it might also go in the exceptions for the labor rep as well, or at least a reference, right? And so that's the kind of like attention to detail that you would need the sellers to do. Now, sometimes the sellers, maybe they're not on board for that. So you're going to actually, as the buyer's counsel, you're going to have to drive that disclosure in the disclosure schedules, which is sort of like a weird exercise for a buyer to do because generally buyers aren't the ones who are making the disclosures. But if you want to make the insurance policy work, right. probably what you're going to have to do. So it's a bit of an education process that's kind of handled by buyer's counsel that are in the know, but specifically by the brokers in Europe and the brokers in, in Asia who are, are getting every day better and better understanding as to what U.S. style coverage requires in terms of not only seller disclosure, but also, you know, buyer's diligence as well. It's a 
a fascinating hybrid concept and really shows uh, the international reach of the product and you know also the, yeah. the creativity from insurers like yourselves who are uh, trying to combine the best of all the worlds to come up with something that, that really works for the buyer insured here. Great. Well, uh, you know, I think we really appreciated the discussion on those differences and then sort of what the capabilities are. So, um, you know, I think guys, uh, we're starting to run a little long on time. I think we'll head on into the uh, the kind of fun part of the show. Uh, and we call this the whole uh, show is fun, Brian. Well, the whole show is fun. <laughs> I, know, I know, I know. The most fun part of the show. Yeah. <laughs> well, this is the most fun part of the show, our, our Shakespearean part of the show, once more under the breach. And I'll let Jenna lead off with the first question that we have here uh, in this part. So, AJ, uh, what do you think is the biggest change, or you could give us two changes if you want, um, that you think we're all going to see in RWI in the next 12 months? And in honor of our international edition, you can give you can answer for the U.S. or international policies. So exciting <laughs> for you! Well, uh, I will go with the uh, international policies. I do think you'll see okay. more hybrid uh, style coverage. In the well, it sounds like for sure. I mean, yes. based on what you said today, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Definitely. I spent I spent a good deal of time um, uh, communicating with. Uh, non-U.S. brokers on the value that a U.S. style policy can provide them, uh, but at the same time also trying to bring them up to date on the proper pricing uh, for that kind of uh, <laughs> coverage because, you know, we definitely don't want to right. get into a situation where we have like the low retentions and the low prices and then also all the U.S. style enhancements. Right. So it has to kind of be like a, a happy right, meeting, right. you know. So I think that that's what's going to happen, um, you know, outside the U.S. I think in the U.S., uh, from what I understand, uh, claim accounts uh, volume in terms of uh, frequency and severity uh, continue to be on the rise. Uh, so I think you'll see a lot more claims activity. And then as a result, I think you'll probably see some uh, price increasing as well within reps and warranties. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, then our second uh, question for you today is, what is a piece of career advice that you would give to someone who might be interested in working in the RWI industry? And that could be as an underwriter, as a broker, as a counsel, anywhere. So I, I think that you know one of the great things about the reps and warranty space is that it is not locked into one particular industry, and that as someone who works either as a broker or as an underwriter, or is even an underwriting counsel in this field, is that you will get exposed to you know little snippets here and there. Um, actually, I shouldn't say little; they're quite dense, uh, but it's in a compressed time frame. Um, about different industries. It's true. Some deals are quite dense in a short time. Right. <laughs> so, so I would say if you were the kind of student like I was in school and continue to be in life, someone who's very good at cramming a lot of information into your brain to be then used to be analyzed in a very quick amount of time, but for a short period of time. And then and as then soon as the test is forgotten, taken, right. <laughs> is expelled, and then replaced with a whole bunch of other information that comes from another Absolutely. deal that quickly analyzed. If that is something that you excel at, because you've seen that in school, when you study for your tests, when you study for your final exams, if you're that kind of person, and you will do well in this industry. <laughs> um, so I think that that would be a kind of a good um, personality and study habit. Um, mixture of what's really kind of required in our business because although as insurers we'd like to be brought into deals as early as possible reality is we're not usually brought in until like the final week or 
or two weeks before the deal gets signed. And so you don't have the luxury of the many months to delve into every little document in the data room, nor should you want to. So if you're really good at absorbing a lot of information quickly and analyzing it very quickly, this could be a great career path for you. I completely agree with that. And it's, Me it's, too. Me too. Yeah, it's interesting the way you say that. And I always feel that way. You know, when you're, when you're in the middle of it, you feel like you know everything about this company and what's kind of going on and how the policy is working and everything. And then, you know, if you came back to me, and sometimes this happens, right? Like, you know, there's a bring down call or something and someone's coming back and asking me questions about it. I'm like, what was that even about? Like, <laughs> I don't even remember that deal. Right. right. <laughs> that, that one was like a, six weeks ago. That feels like a lifetime ago. So it's it oh, is yeah. a very interesting uh, sort of exercise we go through in this. So. But the little side note is you got to take good notes. Yeah, <laughs> so. yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, but it's funny because when you think are like really outstanding notes as you're living through it, turns out when you go back to read them six weeks later, not always the best notes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. We, just we started someone, having someone else's experience, not mine. <laughs> <laughs> for a friend, for a friend. You heard. <laughs> We start having a designated note taker on, on even our calls and from our side as underwriting counsel for that reason. There's just so much happening during the call. And I found just having somebody whose only job is to basically be the stenographer here and to take extremely detailed notes that we can then go back on and rely on too, that it, it's sort of well worth the price. So I, I completely agree with that. So, so our final question, our kind of fun question we always have at the end here. So AJ uh, gave us a heads up ahead of time that he is into skiing a lot. Um, I'm not into skiing, but my wife and my uh, father-in-law are very into skiing and they have these debates oftentimes about the best skiing places and if it's Vail or Jackson Hole or Park City and these, these uh, fancy ski resorts areas. So I wanted to see if AJ wanted to weigh in on those three places or another place that he uh, thinks uh, tops all of them in terms of the, uh, the ski buff uh, debate here. So I think it depends on what you're looking for when you want to go skiing. That's an attorney so, answer right there. It is totally an attorney <laughs> answer. Totally. It so, depends. Yeah. 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 So so in terms of going to the Disney world of the ski universe in North America, I definitely think that Vail is at the top of that list. Uh, because if even if you don't ski, there's so much to do in that village and in that town. Uh, but if you do want to ski, I mean, you're talking probably even for an avid skier skis a lot, way better than me. I think it would still take you multiple days just to hit every trail. The place is immense. Um, when I went there uh, the second time, when I actually did the back bowls, I was like just amazed by the size of it because, you know, you're on one side of the bowl and you're looking at the other side of the bowl. All you see are like little teeny dots zigzagging <laughs> down. So just imagine a gigantic uh, coffee mug, a big saucer coffee mug. And you're on one end and they're on the other end and you're all going towards this little valley in the middle. And as soon as you've got to get halfway down, they kind of start looking like humans <laughs> instead of like little ants. And it's the, so the size of it just sort of just blows you away. Um, but in terms of sort of like pure fun skiing, challenging terrain, and the lines aren't nearly as long and the place isn't nearly as fancy, but a wrappable basin, or a basin they call it, be definitely like you know, the first place I'd like to go to on a trip to Colorado because that's a great place to kind of like just get your ski on. Um, I do because I'm from the Northeast and I live in the Northeast. I do most of my skiing in the Vermont area. And uh, I love to go to uh, Mount Snow because it's the closest big mountain to uh, the New York area. And it's uh, plenty fun, lots to do there. Great terrain park if that's what you're into. Good uh, tree skiing if you like that. Uh, a lot of challenging black diamonds. So it's very good 
um, Quinn Mountain uh, and not too far away. Uh, but if you wanna travel a little further um, in Vermont, uh, Sugarbush is kind of like a mini Vale in the sense that it has a little village at the bottom, um, nice town, great area, beautiful backcountry skiing, lots of fun. So, you know, I guess at the end of the day, you know, my advice to, to folks that are interested in the sport is, you know, go to as many places as you can because there's a lot of beautiful scenery out there. And just have a lot of fun and it's a great family activity. So you're not just a spectator with your kids, you're doing it alongside them. So it's a lot of fun. Oh yeah, one last thing. <laughs> when you have teenagers, when you have teenagers, that time on the chairlift is the best. Aww, they, can't escape. they can't escape from you. So you're sitting there next to you, it's too cold for them to take their phones out, right? They got their gloves on and that's when you get the information. That's when you start asking the questions and they start telling you everything that's going on in their life. Well, you heard it here first, guys. Uh, you would get parenting tips too on this show. Yeah, right. <laughs> it, you know? How to get a vaccine. How to get parent teenagers. How to get teenagers <laughs> to like you. I mean, it's yeah, just yeah. everything this week. So, yeah. well, we thank you very much, AJ, for being on. Uh, it was you, really AJ. a pleasure to have you. Uh, and uh, glad to make a trip all over the world with you on the international deals and, uh, yep. and have this conversation with you. And um, if you want to maybe give the listeners your contact information, if they want to find out more about this uh, uh, and ways that they can reach you, uh, that'd be great. Yes. Okay. So um, I'm over at uh, Tokyo Marine HCC. Uh, if you have any generalized questions or from, from myself or my team, um, our group email box is uh, triusa at tmhcc.com. That's triusa at tmhcc.com. If you have any questions about a deal you're working on that you want to get insurance for, whether you're a broker or an insurer, insured, a policyholder, or a deal console representing any of them, uh, we'd be more than happy to answer any questions you have and be a resource. Okay. Well, that's terrific. Well, thank you very much. And yes. Jenna, I hope you maybe find the vaccine before our next show. So. <laughs> Well, don't worry, I will keep you updated on my uh, attempts here. <laughs> keep progress here. So. Well, yeah. thank you very much, everybody. This is another episode of Into the Breach. Thank you for joining us. And until next time. Thank you for listening to Into the Breach. For show notes, additional resources, and links to the tools discussed on today's episode, please visit rwipodcast.com. The views and opinions expressed by Brian O'Keefe and Jenna Usenheimer in this podcast are their own and do not necessarily represent the views and opinions of Cyfarth Shaw, LLP, its partners, or its employees. The podcast does not provide legal or other professional services. This podcast is made available by the lawyer publishers for educational purposes only, as well as to give you general information and a general understanding of the law not to provide specific legal advice. By listening to this podcast, you understand that there is no attorney-client relationship between you and the lawyer publishers. The podcast should not be used as a substitute for competent legal advice from a licensed professional attorney in your state. As defined in the State Bar of New York's Code of Professional Responsibility, this podcast is considered a form of attorney advertising. Prior results do not guarantee similar outcomes.